So the Apostle Paul is one of the early church leaders that uh, is charged with not just planting, but, but really continuing to build up and encourage early Christian churches throughout the Mediterranean. He writes letters that appear in our Bibles. If you're in the New Testament, a lot of those uh, books that come after the Gospels are actually letters that were written by Paul to churches. Um, imagine if your Tuesday afternoon email ended up becoming a sacred text, right? And that's what 1 Corinthians is. It's the first of two letters in our scriptures that um, are from Paul to a church in Corinth, uh, a large city and trade hub. And in the 12th chapter, Paul begins casting a vision for the church itself. He begins to talk about who he understands the church to be and really what he understands the church could be. That's really what vision casting is. It's not just where we are, but where we could be with God's help. And beginning in the 12th verse, he says this, 12th chapter, 12th verse. If you've got Bibles with you and on your phone, feel free to follow along. He says, Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit and has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many parts. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, and we all were given one spirit to drink. Certainly the body isn't one part, but many, though. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean it's not part of the body? Or if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, does that mean it's not part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? We're going to pause there for a moment. So this church exists in part because a guy a few hundred years ago survived a storm at sea. What I mean by that is there was this guy named John Wesley. He, he lived back in the 1700s, and, and he started this denomination we call Methodism. Accidentally, I should add. Um, I hate it when I accidentally start a whole denomination, right? Um, so he was an Anglican priest and uh, was exiting Oxford and newly christened and minted and feeling all bright and shiny and, and doe-eyed and bushy-tailed. And, and, and the church sent him out to do what churches do with, with young, energetic priests. And they said, why don't you go plant a new church, right? You got energy. You don't have a family. You got no kids. You can sling, you know, tables and chairs in the middle school gym. Uh, go, go do that, right? Um, there were no middle school gyms in those days. Instead, they sent him all the way to this new colony called Georgia, and he was traveling by ship across the Atlantic Ocean when a storm hit. And especially in those days, a storm at sea was a life-threatening experience. And John was understandably terrified. I mean, he understood theologically the providence of God and what it meant to believe in a God who could still storms and those kinds of things. But, but he was scared, like many of us would be in that setting. And then as he's in this ship and, and he's feeling that internal terror, he, he hears singing and prayers in this group of people called Moravians. It's a holiness sect out of Europe. And they're singing these songs together and they're praying together and every ounce of internal fear and terror he is feeling, they are exemplifying this external peace that he just finds absolutely, honestly confusing in the moment. But he realizes in that moment, they've got something that I don't have. 
But then he gets to Georgia, he survives, and he starts planting a church. And the short version is it doesn't go well. He gets some small groups going, but things don't click. And then he has this weird love interest that ends with him denying this poor woman communion because she dared to get engaged to someone else. John had some issues to work through. And so the church council or the priest or whomever said, hey, John, it's time for you to go back to England. This isn't going to work out, right? His end of your evaluation did not go well. And uh, so he gets back on a ship and goes back to England, and he's feeling very depressed. I mean, imagine if your whole life had been building this moment, and you knew everything you were supposed to know, and you're in this prime new suburb called Georgia, and everything just falls apart. And he still can't stop thinking about these Moravians. And he can't stop thinking about this emptiness that he feels inside. And so he goes one day to this place called Aldersgate. That's why in the United Methodist Church, a lot of buildings or churches are named Aldersgate. This place is important to the people called Methodist. It's a gathering for Moravians for worship. And he enters in, and it's there that he has, for the first time in his life, like a heartfelt, personal experience of God's grace. Later, he would articulate this as assurance that he and God were at peace. That emptiness that he had felt for so long was finally full. He, he described that experience as his heart being strangely warmed, like a microwave burrito. That's my bad joke, I always tell. Um, heart strangely warmed. And that changed everything for him. Suddenly, this was not simply an exercise of the mind. It wasn't even a ritual or a rite. It was a lived experience of the very grace of God. And that changed his ministry, and it changed the trajectory of his life. He began to do ministry in a bold new way because he understood something inherent in that moment that we have carried for hundreds of years as the people called Methodist, and that is this, that experience is not just a part of the life of faith, but personal human experience is an essential element to the life of faith. That to know God is not to simply learn about God, is not to simply go to church and sit in a pew and to do all the things and to stand and sit and do whatever and go forward and do this. That, that's not ultimately what it's about, but it's about when that emptiness becomes field, filled and that sense that like, oh, I get it. Not in my head, not in my heart, but like in my bones, in every fiber of my being, I am living in the grace of God. That is the life of faith. And that only happens through lived experience. The Apostle Paul is describing this in a different way. This same idea that John Wesley would come to realize 1,700 years later, that, that the Apostle Paul is talking about the church. He talks about the church as different parts of one body. But did you notice the kind of parts that he names? He doesn't name the spleen. He's, he names the, the eye and the ear and the hands and the feet, these sensory parts of us. And then he says, imagine if you were all just an eye. Where's the hearing? Or if you're all just ears, where's the sense of smell? There's something about the body of Christ that each of us experiences God in our own and unique ways. And so I know that this morning people online and in the room have come from different Christian traditions and different backgrounds. And so I wanted to start this series where we talk about seeing God from the edges, seeing God through the lived human experience of people that aren't in the center of society. But I think it's important to start claiming this tradition that we hold as United Methodists that may be new for you, but I hope is healing. 
And that is this, that your experience matters. Your experience of God matters, and I would say it is essential to the life of faith. Maybe you've been in a pew that wasn't too dissimilar from the one you're in now, or maybe you've been at home and you've watched sermons on YouTube, and be so careful going down the rabbit trails of sermons on YouTube, Um, and, and maybe you've heard people stand in a position like I have and have said, basically, your experience doesn't matter. Like your feelings, your emotions, the way that you think you understand, that doesn't matter. My understanding of God matters, but yours does not. And so your job is to just sort of be quiet and think like me. Um, That's not the message that you're going to receive here. And and I want us all to hear the importance of personal experience. Because it's not enough just to think about God or to talk about God or even to go through the rituals that we say are godly. But it's actually a lived experience of the self that makes the life of faith real. So however you've experienced God in your life, that is real. That matters. In fact, it is essential. But Paul's not done, and and I'm not either, because we're only seven minutes in, and you know how long my sermons are. So Paul keeps going. He says, but as it is, God has placed each one of the parts in the body just like God wanted to. And if all were one and the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts of one body. So the eye can't turn to the hand and say, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are weakest are the most necessary. We're going to pause there for a second. So Paul plays with this metaphor in a way that I find really helpful, this idea of the, of the body of Christ being a, an actual body. And in some ways, it's a little creepy. Like if you imagine a body that's just entirely made up of these hands, like that's a little disturbing, right? That'll keep you up at night. Uh, but the point that Paul is trying to get to is that if God desired sameness, If God wanted each of us to have the exact same experience of God in all the exact same ways, if God wanted each of us to be the exact same, to live the exact same, and to understand God in the exact same way, that that, that's how it would be designed, but it's not. That There's something about this design that is diverse by divine design, That, that God desires this level of diversity, both in who we are and how we experience who God is. That is part of the formula from the very beginning. That is not that our task is to somehow become more like each other, but rather maybe our task is to understand the gift of one another that we bring to this table that we share. And so if we believe that is true, that diversity is actually God's idea first, that it's God's dream for us, then not only is my experience necessary in my life of faith, but your experience of God is also necessary in my life of faith. Because I might be an eye, and I'm only going to see God from a very specific angle, but maybe you are a foot, and you're going to show me what it's like for God to move in an unexpected way. Or maybe I am the rear, and I can't help but to be a problem in the body of Christ. And maybe uh, you are the kidneys, and you help me learn how to expel poison from the body in a helpful way. Are we having fun yet, church, right? <laughs> I need to go back to Wesley's story of conversion. Before he went to Aldersgate, before he had that heart strangely warmed experience, he actually had a different one that set him on that path. It was just two months prior that he went to a prison cell on death row in England, and he met a, nam- a man named Clifford. Clifford was a death row inmate. Wesley had done this before. As a priest, you were expected to visit those who were in prison. And as a priest, of course, he understood the concept of salvation and the fact that God's grace uh, could save anyone at any time. And yet, 
for his whole life, he had always kind of wondered, like, really? But like, like, really? Like, like these guys? Really? And then he meets Clifford, and he begins to share the gospel with Clifford. But he shares it from a more passionate position because of a friendship he had developed uh, over written text with the Moravian. And he, began, he begins to share it more, more openly and more passionately before. And what he watches is he watches Clifford, this death row inmate, experience the grace of God for himself and to feel that sense of peace and wholeness that Wesley had not yet experienced. And in this prison cell, Wesley realized through the faith of Clifford, wow, okay, I'm not crazy. I saw it on the ship, and now I'm seeing it in the prison cell. And I don't have it yet, but my God, there it is. I need what Clifford's got. And two months later, he walked into Aldersgate. I, I tell this story because sometimes, my friends, um, our faith is not enough. In fact, I know for a fact that many people here um, and with us online are in a season of faith where maybe you feel that emptiness. Or maybe you're in a season of, of, of taking apart and wondering what could be built back up. And the gift of the community of faith is not to go into a place and to feel judged because you feel empty or feel unfinished or feel like you're still building something that you're not quite sure what it is yet. But maybe the gift of the community of faith is that sometimes we can be Clifford for somebody else, or sometimes we can come and find Clifford when we really need to. Maybe it's not enough for us to have our own faith, but to actually be able to experience the faith of another, because your faith is going to sustain me when my own faith will not. I might sound weird for a pastor to say, but there are plenty of Tuesdays that I wake up and I just barely believe in Jesus, y'all, right? Because I look at my inbox or I look at the things that I'm facing in this world and it doesn't feel like my faith has what it takes. But then I'll have a conversation or I'll go into a hospital room or I'll meet with a, a, a class that meets during the week and there I'll meet Clifford, right? Clifford has a different name every time, but there I'll experience somebody who is experiencing God and go, oh, I needed that. I don't know that I have that for myself right now, but it's enough for it to be you. That can be the gift of the body of Christ. And so here's what I know to be true, my friends, is that as we move to the edges of human experience, notice that Wesley found this in, in a storm at sea and in a death row prison cell. These things don't always happen in the lanes where we naturally find ourselves. These things don't always happen in the center of social norms. Sometimes it means that we have to move to the edges, move beyond what is expected, move to the places where we don't always think about who lives there or who exists there, or maybe that's not the way our churches are designed to work, but when we move to the edges of human experience, we move closer to God. You know, Wesley was not convinced about the grace of God because he had a great Bible study. He had done a million Bible studies. It's because he had a transformational conversation with someone who was on death's door. As we move to the edges of the human experience, we move closer to God. And so then Paul continues. He says, the parts of the body that we think are less honorable are the ones that we honor the most. The private parts of our body that aren't presentable are the ones that are given the most dignity. The parts of our body that are presentable don't need this, but, but God has put the body together giving greater honor to the part with less honor so that there won't be division in the body. And so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. If one part suffers... All the parts suffer with it. If one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. 
You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. So this is Paul's explanation that those parts that you might first think to listen to and learn from, the parts that are typically the most visible and praised parts of the body, the eyes, ears, hands, and feet, the ones that get all the accolades, they are not the only parts that matter to God. In fact, God cares a lot about that spleen. In fact, God is going to ask us to notice all the parts that we don't think to look to first. The reason this series is called Seeing God from the Edges, it comes from an image that is offered by Nadia Boltz Weber. You may be familiar with her, and if you're not, you should be. She's a phenomenal theologian and writer and speaker, um, and she's especially popular um, in the last 10 years or so, especially with folks who have felt hurt by church or turned off by church or, or, or wondering if church could be different than it is. And she describes her own call to ministry, and she uses the image of an irrigation field. Um, and how frequently irrigation is set up to work in a circle on a square plot. And you don't have to be a geometry whiz to know that if you water the circle on a square plot, there are corners that are left unwatered. And maybe economically those are determined to be, yeah, it's, you know, that's the cost of doing business in the farming world. But she says in, in church world, our churches are set up like an irrigation system and they tend to water certain parts of our world really well. And they ser- seem to serve certain people really well, but the corner people... That's who I'm called to be in ministry with. Those are my people, the people who who don't fit neatly into our systems and structures, the people who are pushed to the edges and don't just find themselves there by birth, the the people that that don't receive that watered grace of God from church that so many of us do. That's my people. And, And I believe here at AUMC we have a similar call to be a church that's for people at the edges, that is a church for the corner people, perhaps we could say. And yet I say that knowing that not all of us are those people, right? I mean, my privilege list is as long as a CVS receipt, right? I'm not a corner person in most areas of my life, and I know many of us are not as, as well. And so being a church that is called to be in ministry with people towards the edges and, and not just to provide charity for or services for, but to be in ministry with, that's a, that's a different kind of calling, and it requires a different kind of movement. It requires doing church in perhaps a different way. When I first came to AUMC, I did a series of listening sessions, 12 of them over Zoom, because it was the summer of COVID in 2020, lucky me. And uh, these 12 Zoom calls were with a whole cross-section of the church, different people in, in each and every call. And I asked different questions, but the last question I always asked was this, what is your dream for the people called AUMC? What is your dream for this church? And every single meeting, every single one to a T, someone would say, and sometimes more than one person would say, and every time others would say, oh yeah, that's my dream too, someone would say, I dream of AUMC becoming a more diverse church. And I said, good. I was glad to hear that in every one of those calls because I, 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 I had looked up data on this church and I knew who we were as a predominantly Anglo and, and largely middle to upper middle class congregation and, and that certainly reflects a few of our surrounding neighborhoods but I also looked at our larger neighborhood here. I drew that radius and it doesn't take long to realize that this community is more diverse than we may be and that's not an indictment. That's just the reality of how church naturally forms, right? Churches naturally become these little watered circles in irrigation fields. And it takes something intentional to say, we want to be more diverse. Now, ah, we want to be 
more diverse. That is a great aspiration. And I would dare say that's an aspiration that a lot of churches have. And let me say from the beginning here, I am not an expert on church diversity. Um, uh, I don't know if you can notice, um, but I am, in fact, a white man. And so... I am not going to stand up here and say, like, let me tell you how to build a diverse church. But what I do know is this. I, I have experience with churches, churches that are not unlike ours, predominantly Anglo, desiring to be more diverse. And I notice that there is a general, um, there's a general movement that happens within churches beyond simply racial diversity, but cultural diversity, age diversity, gender diversity, sexuality diversity, insert word here, diversity. If a church desires to be diverse, there's sort of a, a generally sort of a five-phase breakdown that it requires us to move through. And it's not linear, and it's not always clean and tidy. Sometimes we're working through two different stages at the same time. But here's what I have experienced in my own life. I'm curious if this sounds similar to you. The first stage is resistance. This one's really easy to identify. This is the you stay over here. I don't want you near me stage, right? And, and I want you to think about this in terms of culture because this could apply to anything under the sun. So what does this sound like? This is when somebody's sitting in my pew. Get up, right? It's not the passive aggressive look. It's the, I'm sorry, you're in my pew, right? And if I ever catch any of you doing this, by the way, we are going to have a holy conversation together. Um, <laughs> So we can laugh at that, but um, maybe one that feels a little bit like, oop, stepping on toes, it's when you say, man, I love that this uh, feels like a small church. Now, that's not a sin. It's not a sin to want to feel connection to your friends and family at church. But when what you really mean is, I kind of like that this is a small church. And I mean, one or two people would not be bad, but... Um, I don't know that I want to make a lot of new friends, right? That's when we're going to have to have a holy conversation because this is not about us. This is about who's not here yet. Friends, if you're with me, I need you to say amen. amen. So resistance looks like I don't really want you here if I'm being honest. The next step, the next phase is toleration. Now toleration, this was the goal in the 60s, but 60 years later, friends, we've made some progress, I would hope. This sounds like I'm not gonna be openly hostile to you, right? I will allow your existence around me, right? That, that again, 60 years ago, we we're like, okay, that's a win. Not being the KKK is not a victory, my friends, right? Like not being openly hostile to people who are different from you does not mean that you're like, I am in the kingdom of God, right? I have arrived. Um, that is simply the step where we stop being openly resistant. So this sounds like um, you can be around me. I won't actively be hostile towards you, but that's going to be the extent of our relationship. You still with me? The third step I see is assimilation. Now, this is where a lot of churches live. In fact, I kid you not, I was a part of a church at one point that had a staff member whose job was, in their title, assimilation, Right? Um, I know, kind of odd. Um, I, I didn't speak up. It wasn't my role in that staff meeting. So um, assimilation looks like you can come closer to me. In fact, I'm going to bring you close to me with the goal that you become like me, right? Because I am the standard setter. Uh, I, I am the bar. And the way that I worship and the way that I do things and the way that I believe and the way that I act, that is going to be so good for you. You are going to love it. In fact, as you progress, I'm going to give you like certifications and awards and make you feel so good that you're becoming more like me. Church, does this sound like church to anybody else? Assimilation is where a lot of churches live, where we say our doors are open, come on in. We are here for all people, but we want all people to look like one people. And when we say one people, we mean one people, 
If you're with me, say amen. The fourth stage, this is where a lot of other churches live. This is integration, the stage of integration. Now, this is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be close to you, and you can be close to me, and I'm not going to try to change you, but importantly, and this is a big but, I am not going to be changed, right? We're going to be around each other. We're going to do life together. I'm not going to try and impress my values upon you, but I am not moving an inch for you either. That part doesn't always get explicitly said. What does this look like in the context of church? I... My home church 15 years ago, uh, there was a Tongan, that's South Polynesian, a Tongan worshiping community that was looking for a place to worship. And so my church said, hey, come on in. Sunday afternoons, the room is yours, right? And we're so nice, we're not even going to charge you for the HVAC bill. Isn't that great, right? And it was. It was, a, it, was, it was kind of them to open that space. But it was like, there's your worship service. Do whatever you want to do. We'll see you at the potluck two times a year. God be with you, Right? Now, that began my home church on a journey of transformation that today, they have moved beyond this sort of like cold level of integration. There is a Tongan pastor on staff. Worship at the 11 o'clock hour is conducted in multiple languages many Sundays. The entire scope of ministry is seen as like our ministry together and not our ministry and our ministry, right? And that's what moves us to the last stage, which is what I call celebration. So resistance toleration, assimilation, integration, and finally, celebration. Not many churches make it here. I would dare say a lot of Christians don't make it here on a personal basis. I don't make it here most days of the week. This is what Wesley would call Christian perfection. It's that target we aim at, we hope and pray to God we get to, and we know it's going to be a lifelong journey. Celebration says the important shift here is I'm not going to ask you to come to me. I'm not going to ask you to change who you are on my account. In fact, I see the gift that you bring to my life. I see the way in which you transform me and shape me and my understanding of God that I am finally willing to walk over and allow myself to be moved and changed as a result. So it means that uh, on a Sunday morning when, when, when we hear a, a beautiful child of God to start to make noise in the sanctuary, we don't look around and shoot the look that every mom knows, friends, every mom knows. Most of the dads do too. And instead we say a prayer in our hearts to say, thanks be to God that this kid is disrupting worship in a holy way right? It looks like when we walk into worship and we see an altar setting that doesn't make sense to us, we don't immediately go, who moved my cheese, right? And, and instead, we wonder, what is this about? I wonder what's happening here. It's, it's when we ask for new people to come into this space and to be a part of what we're doing, and then they might, might actually want to do things differently. We don't say, now, wait a second. <laughs> we wanted new people, just not new ideas, Right? Um, it, it's the important shift that says, you are so important to me, and not just to me, but to capturing the heart of God that I am willing to cross an ocean to be where you are. And that applies to race, that applies to gender, that applies to age, that applies to culture, it applies to everything. What Paul is casting a vision for is a living, breathing body that is on the move, my friends. The second we grow too stiff, we can call that rigor mortis. And so I think our challenge as a people who have said, we want to be with the people on the edges means that we have to leave the center. We have to be willing to be flexible and to be open and to be moved by the Holy Spirit of God that will lead us into a transformational relationship with one another. If that is the kind of church that you actually want to be a part of, could I hear you say, amen.
You can, you can clap at that, Kathy. Kathy says she wants to clap at that. <laughs> Kathy's claps are very intentional. That's why I love her. Um, an invitation for you to consider. There's a group called Journey to Racial Justice. Maybe you've heard this spoken about in our church before. Maybe you've wondered what it's about. Maybe it's your first Sunday here and you're about to hear, for, for, hear about it for the very first time. This is a, 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 an initiative um, that was started by our conference that um, we participated in as a pilot church, and it has begun to transform the life of AUMC. Journey to Racial Justice is a scope of ministries where we are trying to not just talk about racial justice and not just to engage in book clubs, but to actually do that transformative mind, heart, soul, and strength work that invites the kingdom of God into relationships specifically with a racial justice bent. It is like, how can we be an anti-racist church in word and in deed? And the invitation is this, on September 17th, after worship, uh, will be the first of a series of monthly gatherings um, during the school year. And the subject is going to be on implicit bias. And remember when I said that first stage is resistance? I imagine most of us think, well, like, well, that's not me. And the reality is it's all of us, just in different ways. Implicit bias is this idea that there are ways in which we resist this kind of transformative change, whether we realize it or not. So we're going to start the conversation there. And so what I would encourage you is when you hear the words journey to racial justice, if you think like, I don't know, like I, wet, I read White Fragility, so I think I've got it figured out. Like, oh, that's the great sign that this is the group for you, right? Because like I said, this is not another book club. This is not another room where we're going to sit around and talk and then do nothing about it. This is where we say, let's, let's actually talk and learn what we don't actually know yet. And then let's put that knowledge in, into, into action and into practice. And let's start by acknowledging ourselves and what we don't yet know about ourselves. So if that's a conversation and a practice that sounds intriguing to you, I would encourage you to come on the 17th of September after worship. You are not committing to a year-long monthly gathering. This is just one meeting for you to see if this is the kind of work that God's inviting you into. So here's your invitation.